coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. The way I look at it, particularly vis-a-vis psychedelics, is thinking about magic and poetry for so much of our world right now. People don't believe in magic and poetry. We've lost a huge connection to spirit. You know, spirituality being the connection to spirit, not necessarily being religious, but connection to the mystery, to the unknown. And even if people come into a psychedelic experience that's corporatized, that's operationalized, that's maybe lost a lot of the magic and the history that we talk about, you know, my belief and my hope at least is that it's going to let them touch the magic, feel that magic for the first time. And even if it's only an inch, and even if it's hyper-controlled, that's what's going to change the world. Like that piece of giving people just that taste of what you're talking about is going to open them up and open their perspectives up to seeing it more and wanting to pursue it more. And that's what's so exciting to me about the industrialization, so to speak, of psychedelics is like, yeah, it's it's going to lose certain charms about the experience that exists right now. There's no question about it. But I think that's the cost uh, of making this more accessible. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Today on the show, I'm interviewing Ronan Levy co-founder of the psychedelic healthcare company Field Trip, which offers Field Trip Health Centers for ketamine-assisted therapy, Field Trip Digital, including the apps Trip and Portal, and Field Trip Discovery, which amongst other pursuits is developing the novel psychedelic FT-104. On the show, we talk about Ronan's experiences with psychedelics and meditation and the business of Field Trip in detail. Ronan shares his perspectives on the modernization and industrialization of psychedelics and addresses the concerns of the existing psychedelic community on the impact of big business in the space. We also talk about the role of therapists, equal access to medicine, and whether it would be a good thing to get mental health benefits without the trip. As one of a few large organizations hoping to industrialize psychedelic medicine, Field Trip is controversial within the psychedelic community. While Maya Health and I personally don't align with or endorse all aspects of the field trip model, Ronan is a thoughtful person and was gracious in inviting a nuanced conversation about these issues. During the interview, we discuss the North Star Psychedelic Ethics Pledge, of which Maya is a signatory, and the cautionary fable, we will call it Paula, about unforeseen consequences in the rush to psychedelic medicalization which I would recommend reading prior to enjoying this far-reaching conversation, and you can find that in the show notes. Ronan is the co-founder and executive chairman of Field Trip. He is also a partner at Grassfed Ventures, a cannabis and biotech VC firm, and chief strategy officer for Trait Biosciences. He co-founded Canadian Cannabis Clinics, as well as Canvas Rx Inc. Originally a lawyer, Ronan holds a Juris Doctor and Bachelor of Commerce degree from the University of Toronto. You can hear Ronan on the Field Tripping Podcast, a place for epic, personal, spiritual, and business journeys on and in psychedelics. And now, here's Ronan Levy. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show, Ronan. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
I know that you're a meditator, and I was curious if you do any kind of rituals or clearing energy kind of things before you jump on an interview like this. Do you have any rituals? Not typically. Um, it's one of the functions of working in a very fast-paced startup and working from home with two young kids. There's not a whole lot of space <laughs> for rituals these days. That being said, you know when I do have the space to do it, I, I often will do if if I can some some heart math, some breathing exercises, just to try and get in the zone. But I would say that's more infrequent than frequent. Yeah, I, I've I've heard. I don't have children myself, and I'm a. I'm a regular meditator, and I've heard that it's really hard to keep that that morning practice going when you are being woken up by excited children. That's very true. Uh, and they don't have predictable schedules by and large. So even if you're like, I'm going to get up early, I'm going to get up at 5.30 in the morning to, to take some time to meditate, there's no guarantee you're going to get that space. So you kind of just go with the flow. That's, you know, isn't that in essence, the truth of meditation is just like letting go. And uh, when you're when you have kids... You know, they force you to do two things. One is to let go uh, and learn how to receive love. You know, they are boundless little joys of love. And, um, you know, that's definitely a huge growth opportunity that comes with children and it forces you to grow. You, you have to respond to it. Well, I hope to be a father someday. So that's a very encouraging, encouraging perspective on parenthood. I look forward to bundles of, of love and joy. Absolutely. So Ronan, I wanted to start the way we often start on the podcast by by kind of touching base with your own psychedelic experiences. And we touched on meditation too, which I know is part of what's brought you to the space of of kind of accelerated wellness, you you could call it. But I'm curious, yeah. what was your first experience with a psychedelic? Well, I mean, it really depends on how you choose to define psychedelic. You know, for me, we define anything that uh, sort of slows the ego or lowers the ego and slows the default mode network as, as psychedelic. So that could be meditation, that could be breath work, or that could be psychedelic drugs. If your question is specific to psychedelic drugs, um, my first experience with it was many years ago on New Year's Eve. Um, probably not the best way to experience a psychedelic, but uh, it was just my wife and I doing New Year's Eve, drinking too much champagne and decided to get into some mushrooms uh, that she had. And so the experience was largely lost on me. We had a great night, but I couldn't distinguish what was the champagne from what was uh, the psilocybin. Uh, in terms of my first real perspective in terms of a psychedelic experience. It was uh, really only two years ago. I mean, what makes, I think, me unique, both in my experience within the psychedelic space as well as the cannabis space, is I came in agnostic to both of them. You know, from a philosophical perspective, I've always been very open-minded and thought people should have the freedom to do what they want as long as it's not hurting anybody else and it's not the government's business. Uh, so philosophically, I kind of started at least in the cannabis industry from the perspective of, I don't know if there's anything medicinal or therapeutic involved in cannabis, but I sure respect that people should have access to this if they want to. So it's always given me a degree of objectivity within this industry. And so my experience with psychedelics, you know, is still relatively nascent. Uh, it was probably 
maybe June of 2018, when I had my first real psychedelic experience uh, with mushrooms, uh, it was myself and my two business partners in the last business, Joseph and Hanan. We were, had learned about what was happening with psychedelics from a business perspective with Peter Thiel and investing in Compass Pathways and MAPS had just been given breakthrough therapy designation. We had just come out of building the cannabis industry. So we saw a really interesting opportunity to, when we heard about what was happening with psychedelics. Uh, so we said, all right, well, if we're going to think about doing something in the psychedelics industry, we should get some hands-on knowledge with this. And so we, my, my friend UJ, who's the one of the authors of the 5-Minute Journal, uh, you may have heard of, uh, was kind enough to help me source some supply. Uh, and we tried it. And, and we we're in our office. And having done a lot of meditation in my life, I think the experience for me was probably not quite as eye-opening as it may have been for Joseph Etrenen, who had relatively less experience in that regard. So it was, it was a wonderful, intense experience. It was very inward. You know, I put on music, I put on Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys um, and just went with it. And it was beautiful and it was visual. And I had this really deep sense that everything I was witnessing was this kind of beautiful art show, uh, especially when you get into the psychedelic kind of visualization and experience. It was this incredible art show that was being crafted from my brain to tell me something in a very... A symbolic way. And it was just my job to sort of parse apart what was happening and understand it. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It was, it was touching. It was insightful. Um, it was a, a relatively light dose. It was about a gram of, of psilocybin mushrooms, but it was, it was great. It was fantastic. And so you've been a meditator for a long time prior to taking psychedelics. And I know that for many people, psychedelics brought them to meditation. I mean, for myself, for example, realizing that you can't just keep tripping and have it work out. You have to, you have yeah. to build and cultivate practices that bring you into that, that state. But you actually came to psychedelics from meditation. What, what style of meditation do you practice? I couldn't tell you exactly if there's a style of it. I have worked with a gentleman named Erwin Perlman, who's based in LA, and he's very involved with metaphysics and, and meditation and you know the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the soul, uh, all of these kind of things. And so as I started working with him, he hosts workshops, meditation workshops. I couldn't tell you, we've never spoken about what style of meditation it is. It just started you know, with these workshops where you go in and he leads you through guided meditations. Uh, and that was really my start and probably my primary practice, both Irwin's meditations as well as Lazarus, who I don't even know how to describe Lazarus. I think he gets described as a non-physical entity that gets channeled through a gentleman named Jack. And, you know, it took me a long time to suspend my disbelief around all of it. You know, meditation always seemed like a good idea, but I didn't subscribe much to it. And for a long time, actually, there was this internal tension with my meditation practice because for some people, like my wife, when she meditates, she has deeply visual meditations that track, especially a guided meditation, very closely. So if you're walking down a, a beautiful path in the forest, she sees that. I don't. Like my mind goes in a million different directions, like just floating. And it can be sometimes tracking the guided meditation. Sometimes it's just talking to me on, a, on an entirely different language. And it, it, there's a lot of resistance and tension there. So I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why aren't I seeing this beautiful path in the woods? Why don't I see this big crystal that, you know, everyone's encountering? And everyone eventually said, because your brain is so hyper logical that your subconscious mind has to kind of 
distract you, you know, distract your conscious mind with all of the symbolism so it can kind of do the soul level work that needs to happen through these meditations. And, and as soon as I kind of let go of that control and just leaned into that experience, which to me, at least with psychedelics, has been very similar in that you're not in control when when you have a psychedelic experience, you set your intention, but then you're going for it. You know, that that meditation experience and, and the experience with psychedelics actually kind of goes hand in hand. And that's why going back to that first experience with psychedelics, it was it was a very deep and intense experience, but it wasn't outside of my realm of understanding or experience. Well, so you are one of the five co-founders. Are there five co-founders of Field Trip? That's correct. Yeah. You are one of the five co-founders of Field Trip. And Field Trip is a pretty major player in the nascent psychedelic space already. And so let's talk a little bit about what Field Trip is, because I know there's kind of a three part there's kind of a three-pronged approach to psychedelic medicine. Say that three times fast. Three-pronged <laughs> approach to psychedelic medicine. And so I'm curious if you could briefly, for those listening who are not familiar with what Field Trip is doing in the realm of psychedelic medicine, what are the three different aspects of Field Trip that are currently either being developed or on offer at the moment? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So with Field Trip... When we were looking at the space, one of the things we realized and one of the things that made us successful in the cannabis industry was really bringing a degree of objectivity and I think business credibility to it. And when we were looking at uh, what was happening in the psychedelic space, we realized that there was the same opportunity that we didn't want to necessarily step on any toes or stop any of the existing practices around psychedelics, but we thought the greatest impact could be achieved uh, through a for-profit approach to it that we thought could amplify access and, and really reach more people. And, and I get that a lot of people see that as a, a potential threat to the existing psychedelic community and culture and, and totally respect that concern. But from our perspective, we were kind of of the view that we need to meet, reach more people with this. Like that, that really is the greatest impact we can have personally on this world. And so as we started really crafting it, one of the things we crafting our business model, one of the things we became aware of is that in the context of kind of modern Western allopathic medicine, psychedelics are, are unique because it really is the interplay between the medicine, the drug, the psychedelic molecule, and, and the therapy. You know, this is really the therapeutic context of, of psychedelics. And so we realized that any business that's going to succeed, any business that's going to provide the most objective therapeutic benefit, you know, whatever scale you want to use, but again, putting it in the sort of modern Western medical landscape, needed to work on both developing the products and the drugs, as well as the therapies and the set and setting that goes around that. And if you're focused on one or the other, you're really leaving half of the experience to a third party or to chance. And, and we didn't think that was going to lead to the best business outcomes or the best therapeutic outcomes. And so Field Trip is really comprised of we talk about in two divisions or three divisions. It, it really depends. Um, we've kind of started talking about in, in two di divisions, which is Field Trip Health, which is our clinical side. We're rolling out a bunch of Field Trip health centers across North America. We currently have four open in Toronto, New York, LA, and Chicago. And they're providing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy to patients or people. Actually, I should say people because we try not to refer to people as patients. Uh, we refer, refer to them as people because that's what they are. And it's really designed to create the infrastructure and the space to enable large-scale access to psychedelic therapies in a, in a truly therapeutic context. So we've built our clinics 
sorry, we've built our field trip health centers uh, to be aesthetically beautiful, uh, very welcoming, safe, very non-medical feeling, but at the same time with a view to ensuring that they're designed for operational efficiency, that we can have people come in, you know, they can have a wonderful experience and, and then when they're ready to move on, we can have other people in so we can enable the greatest access possible. And, and really the view with our field trip health centers is twofold. One is we can deliver incredible results through ketamine-assisted therapies now and really be positioned for MDMA and psilocybin and all other psychedelics as they get legalized and, and approved. But more importantly, in terms of the strategic vision, the field trip health centers exist so we can start collecting data. You know, we talk about set and setting and, and all the different therapies that go around psychedelic therapies. But no one, it seems, has really tried to dial down or drill down on what music is the most effective, you know, what lighting experience is the most effective to create create, great therapeutic outcomes, or even if not great therapeutic outcomes, if a person needs to go through a a healing experience or a transformational experience or a growth experience, can you kind of connect the dots between types of music or lighting or all of the other aspects of the setting to a particular journey or to a particular outcome. And so through the field trip health centers that we're opening up, one of our key focuses is trying to collect and understand the data around that so we can ensure that people have consistent as possible predictable experiences with specific views in mind. Within field trip health is also field trip digital. So one of the things we realize is that in order to enable access to psychedelic therapies, which right now are very expensive because they're very labor intensive, we wanted to invest in the digital tools to make sure that people can both have the greatest experience both before and after and during. Uh, so they have access to all the tools and information and support they need without necessarily being face-to-face -face with someone or in, in the same room as someone, particularly in the COVID era. Uh, so within Field Trip Health, we have Field Trip Digital and we've built two digital tools right now really to support people. The first is called Portal, which is really designed for the in-person experience in our field trip health centers. It gives people access to an incredible amount of information. So the first time they walk into one of their ketamine sessions, they are prepared with all the information, all the understanding. It's going to have access to meditation. So people do meditations in advance. So not only are they cerebrally, cerebrally ready for it, they're also emotionally ready for it as much as possible. And information and, and tracking so they can see the entire journey. They understand what to expect the entire way. And then, you know, most importantly, I think, as after the treatment uh, program is done, because this is still done in, again, in the modern Western context as treatment programs, you know, there's lots of tools and support. So hopefully if they've come in because they're dealing with depression, uh, we give them the tools and access to engage behavior and habit change. So hopefully maybe they don't slip back into depression or, you know, it's much longer before those depressive feelings starts coming back. So we've got field trip health and within that field trip, uh, digital with portal. And then the other tool we've built is trip. Uh, Trip is an app that's available on Android and iPhone. That's really for people who can't come into field trip health centers. For people out there who are kind of doing it on their own, psychedelics are certainly going mainstream and I'm sure there's a lot of interest and excitement around it. And so you're probably going to have a lot of people experimenting. And what we saw was that the, the protocols we're building for in-clinic experience were incredibly thoughtful. We brought together experts from a variety of backgrounds and so we realized that through an app, we could take a lot of those protocols and practices, simplify them, 
uh, and put them out there so people who may be uh, doing any consciousness expanding activities on their own can do it in a, at least a thoughtfully and somewhat guided way through a digital tool. And so that's TRIP. And so that's Field Trip Digital, which is really part of Field Trip Health. It's all about the experience. On the other side of the equation is Field Trip Discovery. And what we're doing in Field Trip Discovery is twofold. The first is uh, we're advancing clinical work on a novel molecule that we've developed called FT-104. FT-104 is derived from known psychedelic compounds, but we've really focused on thinking about ways that psychedelic drugs, especially in the, the, the modern Western medical context, can be enhanced to make them more clinically accessible. And so MDMA and psilocybin are incredibly powerful, wonderful molecules, but from a clinical perspective in you know, giving respect to psychiatrist time and doctor time and therapist time, they're very long experiences. So we kind of looked and said, is there a way we can find a molecule, enhance it, deliver just as potent a potent an experience, but in a shorter time frame. So a person doesn't necessarily have to take an entire day off work to come in for treatment. They could maybe do it in the morning. And, and listen, there's pros and cons associated with it. We're the first to admit that. But from a clinical operational perspective, it's it's much more effective to have intense experiences, but shorter experiences as well. And so that's what we're doing with FT-104. Uh, we've confirmed it engages the 5-HD2A receptor. We've confirmed that the time frame for a trip on FT-104 is going to be about two hours as opposed to the four to six for, for psilocybin. So it kind of meets those criteria for us. And then the other piece of what we're doing within Field Trip Discovery is really trying to do the research on psilocybin producing mushrooms. The founders in Field Trip all came out of the cannabis industry where you know, the initial interest was on THC and then CBD became a thing, an even bigger thing than THC, it seems. And now there's interest in, I think, 100 or so minor cannabinoids that have been identified within the cannabis plants, many of which have their own therapeutic potential. And the same exists for psilocybin producing mushrooms. They have not been studied in depth. You know, when people take psilocybin mushrooms in North America, typically they're taking one species, which is cubensis, you know, which has been studied to some degree, but there are 200 or so psilocybin producing fungi out there. And so there's a great opportunity to learn more, potentially develop new products, new therapeutics, and really try to be in a position because we fully expect that you're going to see kind of the modernization of, of psychedelics happening in, in a kind of business context, exactly like what just got passed in Oregon actually on Tuesday, which was incredible. Really being in a position such that if you see more regulated access to psilocybin producing mushrooms, that we're in a position to actually produce psilocybin producing mushrooms in a way that's legally compliant, that meets all analytical testing requirements, that at least in terms of the psilocybin content is consistent and predictable. All of these kind of things that you'd expect to, we expect to see as part of the modernization of psychedelics in, in an industrial perspective. And so we're growing diff 25 different species and strains in, in our research facility at the University of West Indies in Jamaica. So those are the pieces of what we're doing with Field Trip, both the product development as well as the delivery and experience aspect of it as well. Well, Ronan, you have clearly done a lot of interviewing before because you covered a whole bunch of my questions just in that single answer. <laughs> so I very much appreciate that. And I think that... Um, I think that I'd like to go into this community piece right away because there's a couple of things that you touched on that I think are relevant to what might be termed an existing kind of psychedelic community. And the idea of modernization of psychedelics is both 
very exciting in who it can help, potentially you know, expanding access to people who wouldn't approach psychedelics, expanding access in terms of how many people can, be, can, can receive these medicines considering the epidemic of mental health issues around the world. At the same time, mm-hmm. there is concern about these lineages of psychedelic wisdom keepers. And for me personally, I've experienced a lot of magic in the ineffable qualities of psychedelics. And I'm going to draw an analogy here from my previous career, which is the world of festivals. So I used okay. to be a festival, a professional festival reviewer. And what I found That's often a cool happened, gig. It, was a cool, it was a very cool gig. It's part of why I know a lot of psychedelic people. What Fair I enough. found in that situation was that there were these private boutique festivals that had a lot of this kind of ineffable magic. And that when they then got purchased by these bigger companies, in order to make them more efficient and shave the kind of margins, something got lost in the magic. And... I think a concern that a lot of folks have in the psychedelic world is that there's a lot about psychedelic healing that can get lost in a kind of rush to medicalize and modernize psychedelics. For example, I see psychedelics as being not only healing for an individual, but healing for society at large, in part because of certain kind of politically subversive qualities to psychedelics. Psychedelics kind of upend, there's kind of a coyote energy in certain psychedelic experiences. And I I think that there's a fear that if everything gets kind of streamlined and medicalized, that some of the most potent transformative qualities of psychedelics, particularly when it comes to changing society and culture itself, will actually be lost in that process. And so I think that from that perspective, there's a lot of folks that are that are concerned about this kind of modernization and medicalization of psychedelics. And I'm curious from that perspective, how much have you and your colleagues at Field Trip been looking at some of these ancestral kind of wisdom traditions a la ayahuasca or iboga and also the kind of like the the legacy academics in psychedelics these these different perspectives how are they influencing field trip particularly when it comes to keeping kind of the magic and the art of something and not making it so analytical and so streamlined yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and there's a lot to touch on there, so I'm going to try and remember to touch on all the key points. But, but before I do, I just want to read one of my favorite quotes from my, uh, my favorite author, Tom Robbins, um, which certainly informs my perspectives on this. But it goes, I'll say this much and no more. There's got to be poetry and magic at every level. If civilization is ever going to be anything more, but a, more than a grandiose pratfall, anything more than a can of deodorizer in the shithouse of existence, then statesmen are going to have to concern themselves with magic and poetry. Bankers are going to have to concern themselves with magic and poetry. Time magazine is going to have to write about magic and poetry. Factory workers and housewives are going to have to get their lives entangled in magic and poetry. And so that's certainly essential to at least my philosophy uh, on what we're doing. And all the concerns you have, I think, are somewhat valid, but maybe, I think from my perspective, put the the responsibility maybe in the in the wrong spot and the outcomes particularly a little too teleological so you know from my perspective there is let's touch on the festivals aspect of it first which is when festivals grows it's just the nature of humanity that things that are exclusive are special right it's just part of our psyche and when things are small and exclusive they have magic they absolutely have magic 
you don't need a corporation to come in and buy it to take that magic away. If that thing gets too popular and lots of people start doing it, you start you hear this with Burning Man, for instance, it loses its magic, right? There's an element of exclusivity and perceived magic that goes hand in hand. So the concerns you have of, you know, big corporations coming in and standardizing it is is perfectly real. That does happen, but that's not the only reason that happens, right? At least from my perspective. And so the way I look at it, particularly vis-a-vis psychedelics, is thinking about magic and poetry for so much of our world right now. People don't believe in magic and poetry. We've lost a huge connection to spirit. You know, spirituality being the connection to spirit, not necessarily being religious, but connection to the mystery, to the unknown. And even if people come into a psychedelic experience that's corporatized, that's operationalized, that's maybe lost a lot of the magic and the history that we talk about, you know, my belief and my hope at least is that it's going to let them touch the magic, feel that magic for the first time. And even if it's only an inch, and even if it's hyper-controlled, that's what's going to change the world. Like that piece of giving people just that taste of what you're talking about is going to open them up and open their perspectives up to seeing it more and wanting to pursue it more. And that's what's so exciting to me about the industrialization, so to speak, of psychedelics is like, yeah, it's it's going to lose certain charms about the experience that exists right now. There's no question about it. But I think that's the cost uh, of making this more accessible. But I also think that one of the things that's uh, one of the books that I've been extremely influenced by in my life was called uh, The Rebel Cell Why the Counterculture Can't Be Jammed. And I mean, it touched on a whole bunch of different theses by a couple of profs at the University of Toronto. But one of the things they talked about was that, um, and it kind of touches on that first point, is that as, something, as soon as something becomes cool, for lack of a better word, or magical, people flock to it, right? And, and capitalism enables access to to these things, right? Like all of a sudden, like, you know, if they use the example of Burberry scarves when they became popular again in the sort of early 2000s, it's like for a long time, they weren't cool and then they became cool and they were super expensive and only the elite fashionistas could wear Burberry scarves or were wearing them. But then people saw that and saw that they were attractive and well-made and all that kind of stuff. And then more people wanted it. So Burberry started bringing down the cost and, and more people could have access to these beautiful scarves. It's like, is that such a terrible outcome? Maybe, maybe not. You know, that that's an opinion that someone can have and, and decide for themselves. But what then happens is, you know, the people who are wearing this Burberry scarves at first instance find something else to sort of focus on and get interested in. And the same thing can can sort of happen here, which is as soon as a festival gets corporatized, as long as people value the magic and that experience of whatever it is when something's, you know, you're going to be able to find that elsewhere. And just because people value things, we see it in the beer industry and, and now in the cannabis industry, and it's like not perfect. It's not like a, a straight line, but like people value craft products now, right? And so even though you still have the Molson and the Budweiser's and all of these big beer companies, you have all of these small craft breweries that are producing something special and unique emerging because people want that. And so the same things I think is going to happen in psychedelics, that even if a lot of the magic in the current psychedelic community kind of gets corporatized, that psychedelic community is still going to find places and homes for 
whatever may have been lost in, in the corporatization of things just in different places. And it's not going to go away as long as people find value in it. There's still going to be access to it, right? And so I think the concern is real. I think there's going to be some of that happening, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as uh, problematic as people are, are concerned about because if it's special, people will find access to it. If it, if it has magic, people will find ways to, to source that magic. And, and I'm okay with that. Now, specifically to field trip, you know, it's one of the things that we do try to balance and, and be conscious of. It's not easy, I'll be honest. We have one of our investors. He's also one of our physicians, um, is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Randy Sherlock. And he's a board advisor. So he's not technically on the board of directors, but he's invited to every board meeting. And his role is to try and maintain that nexus to the culture, to the community, to the history, and make sure that they are represented in all the business conversations. And, and that's really the, the first step we've made towards formalizing a way to consider these aspects of it. It's not perfect, but it's, it's a step. Can you give an example of a time when you had a meeting and he was holding the container for the broader psychedelic community and pushed back on something that other people were wanting to do? Can you, can you cite an example when that dynamic was in play? He was, you know, very vocal about needing to ensure that that kind of nexus to, I mean, it's in part the culture, but more I think his focus is on on like the 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 magic, you know, that exists and, and making sure that doesn't disappear. So, um, as well as the history. So, like, you know, one of the things he he talked about and trying to when he was trying to explain the role that he wanted to play to us, he talked about how. You know, it's very possible that in a therapeutic psychedelic experience in one of our field trip health centers, someone will experience God, you know? And he's like, are the therapists qualified to deal with that conversation? You know, that's a very intense thing and it doesn't fit very nicely in the academic training that most psychotherapists have. So he's like, how are we going to prepare for experiences like that? That's that's the lens he's bringing, which when you talk to most doctors, they're not going to think about whether someone's going to experience God in a particular uh, session. They're just going to worry about, you know, is their heart rate okay? Are they breathing okay? What are their scores and measures afterwards and all that kind of stuff? So we are conscious about it. You know, do we go far enough I don't know, but I do think we're we're doing a, a very we're, we're we're thoughtful about it, and and we'll continue to adapt and evolve. And you know, like I said from the beginning, like I certainly want to uh, ensure we preserve the magic uh, of the experience. And and I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when we developed the current protocols that we had, we not only brought in psychiatrists and psychotherapists, we brought in underground therapists and graduates of CIS and people not necessarily. Uh, traditional shamans, but who have studied under traditional shamans and worked with traditional shamans. So, you know, at least indirectly, those perspectives have been presented and represented in the protocols that we've developed for our, our field trip health centers. So this is a nice segue to talk about the therapists themselves. Um, a lot of our audience here are psychedelic therapists and healers, many who are doing programs like CIIS or some of MAPS's trainings. I'm curious, what are the trainings that the therapists that you're working with are getting? Is there a formalized selection of kind of field trip therapy protocols that they're doing? And also, if you could speak a little bit about the therapist, I'm just curious about, you were talking about Portal as a way of kind of offloading some of the tasks of a therapist 
to create more time for more patients. I'm curious where the therapists fit into the clinic model, what their protocols are, how often that they're working, how are they trained to work, and how are you kind of taking care of burnout and just generally managing the therapists that are part of field trip? Yeah, I'm, I'm not as close to that aspect of the business, so I'll speak to my knowledge of it. You know, in terms of training the therapists, most of the therapists we have hired are either CIIS trained or uh, have direct experience as, as psychedelic therapists. So they come in with a degree of knowledge to the extent that they don't have experience with psychedelics and psychedelic therapies. You know, our, our current program, and it's constantly evolving, is really focused on apprenticeship and shadowing. So they're working with therapists who have more experience and can get more hands-on experience in a psychedelic context as well. But certainly right now, there's no shortage of people who are interested in, in working at field trip health centers that do have robust experiences with psychedelic therapies. So in terms of developing novel training or, or having to train a, an army of therapists that don't have hands-on experience, we haven't had to deal with that too much yet. One of the people who's primarily responsible for helping us find therapists to work in our centers uh, is CIIS trained. She's a clinical psychologist. She's really focused on ensuring that we have diversity of therapists with a broad base of experiences uh, so far. In terms of managing the burnout or anything along those lines, I don't I don't know offhand. I know, you know, we're still, all of our clinics, or all of our field trip health centers are still relatively new and, and the patient base is just starting to scale up. So I don't think we've hit the point where we have so many patients coming through that um, burnout is a significant issue yet, but we'll continue to adapt and evolve as they continue to get busier. Um, and I know we're already bringing on new therapists because we're kind of hitting the capacity, but really we're trying to take the lead from people who have worked in the space and have a lot of experience with it in terms of finding the right balance between operational efficiency and and making sure that therapists don't burn out right now. And it's, it's going to be a continuing, evolving consideration as we, as we continue to move forward and get busier and, and these challenges become much more paramount for us. So you spoke a little bit earlier about an existing psychedelic community and field trips relationship to it. I'm sure that you um, are familiar with the North Star Pledge and the cautionary tale, we will call it Paula. I can't imagine that that hasn't come across your desk at some point since it's been very alive in the conversation. Are you involved with the North Star people at all? Are you interested in signing the North Star Pledge? How are you playing with the existing psychedelic community? I know that you have Randy on your team who's kind of holding that space and giving that feedback. Are you in conversation with other members of the psychedelic community for the sake of our collective ethics? And particularly, I'm thinking of the people at North Star. We have spoken with the people at North Star. We have reviewed it. I don't think we've signed the pledge, to, to be quite honest. You know, from our perspective, we're focused on on doing things ethically and thoughtfully, and we certainly have enough um, therapists. You know, including Randy, but a lot of the therapists who are CIS trained are, are bringing a lot of the the sort of morals and ethics that I think most people would expect in, into the company. And, and, and we're trying to strike the right balance between operational efficiency and, and, and the considerations that are largely contemplated within the North Star Pledge. You know, I, I'm a lawyer by training. And one of the things that I've sort of experienced in my life is that rules and regulations are usually very... Uh, they create a lot more consequences than most people think. And, and it's almost impossible to create a set of rules or morals and write them down that don't quickly 
become almost irrelevant or so significantly changed as new dynamics and new expectations emerge. And often they create perverse experiences or perverse outcomes. You know, it happens all the time. You know, a law is created with generally good uh, intentions, but the consequences of it leads to terrible outcomes. And that's why I'm always hesitant to sort of attach anything to a written down pledge or, or anything along those lines, because very often they become stale dated, not, they, it's hard to make them responsive. And instead of relying on a third party's ethics or morals, you know, focus on on your own morals and your own ethics. You know, again, Tom Robbins talks about some, at some point in someone's life, they have to separate what is right from what is merely legal. And that's, you know, A, an individualized thing. I don't think it's a, always a collective thing. And B, you know, it's always evolving and there's always new instances and new circumstances. And, you know, we, we just have to look at like, you know, the Bible, for example, and how many different interpretations exist about what you should do in given circumstances, even though the Bible is a set of guidelines and principles that you should live with. And, and so that's why there's like, and maybe this is just one of the things I got to work on, but like there's a, just a natural resistance to have anyone tell me how to, or tell us how we should be doing this. Um, uh, you know, what we can, we're thoughtful, moral, ethical people. And I think we can come up with our, our own standards. That being said, you know, it just hasn't been a priority for us to actually contemplate whether the North Star Pledge is uh, something we want to adhere to. Again, because we're focused on, on doing things ethically already, but that doesn't mean we won't cite it. It just means we haven't really made it a priority to consider whether we want to be part of it. You know, on the other hand, though, which is a little bit more, I think, in tune with our approach to business is that we did last year apply for B Corp status with B Labs. We adopted the necessary things into our, our, our articles of incorporations. Everything was looking good. And then they decided that they didn't know how to really assess psychedelic companies for B Corp certification. So uh, we kind of just got put on the sidelines. And actually, one of the things I'm working on right now is to, to re-engage that process. So even though we're largely compliant with B Corp requirements, you know, we'd like to actually formally see if we can get B Corp certification. So I think that reflects, you know, our perspective on it. It's it's a slightly different angle of what the North Star Pledge I think is hoping to achieve. But I think in terms of the purpose of it, it, it is aligned in, in terms of ensuring ethical practices within the operation of psychedelic companies. You know, Ronan, that B Corp stuff at the end really saved it for me because I was getting a little, I was getting a little anxious. My concern being that, you know, if there isn't some kind of guardrails, then the motivation is the profit motive. It's the market. It's sort of like, how can we outcompete? How can we achieve? And I think having something like B Corp status, having something to balance just kind of the bottom line, you know, creating, you know, the triple bottom line, for example, like having some guidance in that way, I think is enormously important, particularly in this space, when there's so much impact that is going to be had by companies such as yours, in terms of not only the mental health space, but also these incredible medicines that have come through these, these traditions that have been protected over many years. And I believe do have the ability to, to really change our relationship to the earth, our relationship to our lives and to each other. I think what's most important for us is to be in constant communication with the existing wisdom around us, with the understanding that, that we are ethically minded people, but we also don't know what we don't know. And so I think that having these different not exactly checks and balances, but these different influences are going to be enormously important as this industry grows. Certainly. I, I remember, I forget the name of the book or the author, but it's like, it's one of those things, it's like 
you know, I've never committed murder. I don't need a law to tell me that murder is wrong. You know, this is a very extreme example, but like I can engage and act ethically without need to reference a, of laws or, or rules provided by third parties. And, and so there, there's always kind of the balance. That being said, I think the, the point that you said that really struck me is like, yes, constantly be informed, you know, constantly have differing viewpoints, offering thoughts and commentary and, and being able to, you know, absorb those, reflect on them, incorporate them. And I think, you know, I, I think by and large, we now everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people start to recognize the, the, the importance of a diversity of views and perspectives everywhere, especially in business. You know, there's a lot of organizations and, and evidence uh, objectively that the companies that have the most di- diverse viewpoints within their management and, and board level operations tend to have the best outcomes. Uh, so not only is the right thing to do, it leads to, to the best outcomes. But, you know, I, I was speaking with someone the other day specifically about, you know, the concerns about the for-profit motive in, in, in the psychedelic community. And I thought his words, which he learned from one of his guides, was really appropriate. And it, he said that money is an energetic exchange. And the important thing is to walk the mystical way with practical feet. And, you know, there, there are a lot of companies out there now that I think are doing an, ex, an excellent job of showing that, um, for instance, you know, I'm sure people have critiques and issues with Apple, but like Apple can st- constantly increase their profits while still like being one of the most ethically minded companies ensuring environment, you know, focused on the environment more than other groups, focused on diversity and employment ethics more than other groups. And so I think there are examples of companies that are focused on profit while still focused on elevating humanity. And those can be brought into alignment relatively well. There's no perfection in that, but I think it can be achieved. Uh, and I think it can be ch- achieved from within and not necessarily from you know uh, a third party uh, written kind of perspectives. Uh, again, that's just my, there's a lot of debate and like I'm, I'm opening to hear otherwise, but I do think the important point is like having input and i think having evolving input is is the most important piece of that equation well and and i have a suggestion for a piece of input for you sure. which is if you have not yet done so i would highly recommend sitting in a traditional ayahuasca ceremony you mentioned earlier in the conversation that there isn't data on the right music or the right vibe and there's certainly not data but there are time honored traditions about about creating an incredible healing container. And for me personally, in my relationship to psychedelics, the ayahuasca experience and the connecting with the entities or the entity, whatever it is that you experience in ayahuasca, is revelatory on a level that I have not really found with other psychedelics. I mean, everybody's got their own medicines that speak to them in certain ways. But if you're looking for some great input, I would suggest heading down to the Amazon and and sitting in one of those ceremonies. I'm guessing that you have not done that yet. I have not done that yet. Is it is it on the list at all? Is it something you're interested in? Uh, yeah, listen, absolutely. You know, is it high on the list? Probably not right now because I've got young kids and and travel is like a, a big commitment. But it's certainly something I want to experience absolutely when you know life permits for sure. One of the things that like personally like. 
I find a challenge is this notion that traditions are, are static. You know, there's a lot of, I remember, again, I think it was in the book, it may have been that book of the rebel cell where they were talking about like, you know, there's this big outcry when some cultures in the Amazon that had been largely isolated had their first experience with Coca-Cola and they really wanted more Coca-Cola. And everyone thought this was a great tragedy that somehow we were, you know, ruining uh, this pristine culture. And, and the commentary in the book was, who are we to decide what these people should consume? It's like, we have no right whatsoever. If they want Coca-Cola, let them have Coca-Cola. That's not our decision to make. That's their decision to make. Like, if you want to respect their culture, like respect their culture, which means respect their autonomy to evolve their culture as they want to. And that really resonated with me. I, I don't. I don't know that I. I don't know that I buy that that particular argument because Coca Cola has just penetrated markets around the world, and it's not simply that someone is like discovering Coca Cola in a, in a way that isn't with all the kind of trappings of international capitalism and some of the different kinds of predatory ways that that operates. I. I I, I get the point that it changes, and I think that ayahuasca ceremonies themselves have been westernized, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that bringing different healing modalities into an ayahuasca ceremony, but I, I just I believe that pristine cultures getting you know addicted to the caffeine in Coca Cola that they're not familiar with, and maybe if they're in the Amazon, they're already familiar with you know coffee beans. But Western culture is very intense for uncontacted tribes, for example. And I, I don't know that I necessarily think, like, who are we to say they shouldn't drink Coca-Cola? I'd be more like, who are we to, like, push all of these products into these different markets? I, I Listen, I, I hear you 100%. You know, again, the, the thing that sort of comes up, though, is like, for me, it's like, yeah, if it's predatory, sure, you know. But again, it's like... The, and it's one of the kind of evolving views I've had is like, there's still like this paternalistic kind of sense of like, well, they can't handle themselves. You know, we're so predatory, we should protect them. It's like, well, or maybe we should respect their ability to to make their own decisions and protect themselves, which to me feels like the more respectful thing to do. Now, I totally get it. Like, there's also that part of me that says, oh, no, we should protect these things. Like, it's pristine. There's something magical and beautiful in here that we happen to have discovered. And, and, you know, that that's worth protecting, which also resonates with me. Don't get me wrong. But I've just come to a point where... And, and this kind of informs some of my view, the political views, which is like, you know, and why I kind of got to the place where I think the war on drugs is, was a terrible idea. In part, you know, my thinking is, you know, and I look and and especially as I, I'm kind of now of the age of like Justin Trudeau in Canada, who's just a little bit older than me. And I and I look at the Minister of Health and, and the Minister of Justice who made, you know, especially in the context of cannabis, all of these rules around can, how cannabis has to be produced and how it can and cannot be marketed. And I realize that they're no smarter than I am. You know, maybe they are, maybe they have better grades and all that kind of stuff. But really, do they know what's right for me? I'm sure they make mistakes in their own lives. So who are they to then opine what the rest of Canada can or cannot do? It's like, they're probably well-intentioned, but they're imperfect. So where is the, where does that balance lie? You know, some stranger that I've never met who just happens to be very charming and, and gets elected, gets to decide what I can and cannot do with my body. That seems like a, a pretty severe invasion of of like my autonomy and my persona. You know, and I've, it took me a long time to get here. But as you realize that politicians and rule makers are just as imperfect as we are, you start to question why they get more of a say in how I live my life than than anybody else. You know, it's just one of the things that I've been thinking about over the last few years. I want to go back to something from way in the beginning of the conversation, which is FT one hundred four. 
Have you yep. tried it? And if so, what is it like? I have not tried it. You know, it is still in preclinical stages, so we're producing very small quantities of it. And again, you know, we operate with the uh, principles around the scientific ethics, which is you don't put it into people until you've completed the initial testing, you know, protocols. And only once it's known to be at least believed to be safe by like the initial testing protocols, do you start putting it into people. Uh, so I, I've never tried it. That being said, I know the chemical structure from which it was sort of built off of. And so, you know, in this, in this particular instance, we know it's probably safe and probably works very well. But uh, again, we won't be doing any human testing and I won't be ingesting it, nor will anybody on our, in our company be ingesting it until we've you know ensured that it's at least likely to be safe. Okay, so it's quite early on in the development phase, so it, it hasn't. That's correct. Yeah. yeah okay, because I'm because I'd be curious, you know, what that molecule would, you know, having done a number of psychedelics myself and and feeling that they're, they're it's radically different. They may be working on the same receptor in the brain, but they f- are radically different. And it comes back to the question of magic. You know, like if we if we find something that taps this receptor in just such a way. I mean, well, and this kind of brings a question that I want to ask too. Is like, do you think it would be a good thing if you could get mental health benefits, but completely eradicate the trip? Do you think that would be a positive thing, or would or would that represent something important being lost? I mean, I think it would be a good thing. Don't get me wrong, um, but you know, as a company and as a philosophy, and me personally, it's like. And and this goes through my meditation practice and all the kind of things that I've gone through. It's like you have to do the work. Like I've often talked about like field trip being like Home Depot for mental health and personal growth, which is you can do it, we can help, you know, it's it, but it's work. It's, it's a process. You've got to, you know, heal the traumas. Otherwise it's just numbing or not numbing, but uh, obviating, you know, the, the real motivational, the, the real drivers, right. You know, from my perspective, what excites me about psychedelics, and I think I touched on this a little bit, is that it's not about psychedelics. To me, I don't care about psychedelic drugs really that much. But I think psychedelics are the platform that are going to open up the conversation around spirituality and emotionality and like the real drivers, at least in my mind, of the mental health crisis. You know, we're not in this mental health crisis because you know, because there's something wrong with us or, you know, there's something in the water or our brains aren't producing the right chemicals. I mean, certainly there are aspects of that and what's happening. But I think the biggest driver is that, you know, in, in part, I mean, I think it's part driven by urbanization, but I think it's part driven by this, the chauvinism that we've experienced for the last 2000 years, which have distorted the masculine and feminine energies and made men performance objects and women sex objects and men can't feel their feelings. You know, men don't cry, all this kind of stuff. It's like holding on to those energies and those emotions are exhausting and they're distorting. And I think that's what's driving the mental health crisis. So if you, you know, just give someone a pill so they're not depressed anymore, it's like, that's, an okay outcome. Like um, I'd rather take that than nothing at all. But I'd rather, you know, we actually fundamentally change the conversation that's leading to the dynamics that's leading to this mental health crisis instead of just trying to put a Band-Aid on it. And so I think psychedelics are going to, my hope and my expectation and my belief is that psychedelics are going to be the platform that starts this conversation. And that doesn't mean you have to use FT-104 or psilocybin or go on an ayahuasca journey to start to work and tap into that process. But if 
psychedelics, uh, you know, and, and certainly it seems like psychedelics will greatly accelerate that for most people and, and enhance the experience for most people. But, you know, if we can find a different way to engage that so people can start processing their emotions and, and tapping into their spirituality and, and, and working through their traumas, I don't need the drugs to make that possible. If that can happen on its own, then that's wonderful. And and if psychedelics accelerate it, that's great as well. But they're not necessarily preconditioned on each other. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I still get a bit stuck on is the idea of individual healing versus the healing of society. And one of the things that I find most beneficial from psychedelics, particularly in the more tra- kind of traditional setting, is the idea of community, the idea of reverence for the earth. Some of these ideas are coming through the culture, not just the molecule. And my fear is, is that when we translate these molecules into you know a modern industrial context, then it's a modern industrial context when actually some of the benefits of psychedelics in my experience have been that they kind of wake us up a little bit out of maybe this isn't the best system for us. Maybe I shouldn't be participating or competing in this system. Maybe what I need to be doing is growing my own food. Maybe what I need to be doing is creating more of a village environment for myself because that would be more healing, not to me as an individual alone, but to you know, my society around me and the the world at large. And so I think one of the things, one of the fears in terms of translating psychedelics into the context of, frankly, an unhealthy world in many respects, extractive capitalism is ultimately, you know, the main driver of our climate disaster, maybe the only driver of our climate disaster. That's kind of, that's the place where it still really sticks for me. And that's why, for me, I'm interested in these more traditional settings. Not necessarily in in absolute purity, because I don't think that that serves anyone, and that's not accessible to everyone, so there's got to be a balance. But I'm wary of just translating entirely into a more sort of efficient, modern capitalist context. Which is fair. I think my, and and I agree that's a concern. My perspective and my hope and my belief is that when you give people, even in this individualized modern Western perspective, you know, a taste of magic, open their eyes to magic, then the aspects around community and building the village and reverence for the planet are going to start to flow from that. You know, to me, psychedelics are are the cure in some ways for modern ills um, because they're going to start changing that individualistic perspective that a lot of people have and open them up to a, a much more nuanced and colorful and diverse world that we've largely been shut off from. So, you know, at I hear you that the concern is that you're going to exclude like the community setting and all that kind of stuff. And that's going to be squeezed out. Again, I don't have that concern. I guess there's the challenge I have, I think is that like, if this is so powerful and so meaningful in the whole community context, and, and I put this back on you, it's like, if everyone sort of wakes up and and is aware of the importance of this, is that not going to then eliminate some of the things that make it so special to you, right? You know, it's like Burning Man. As soon as Burning Man became mainstream, a lot of people are like, yeah, this this isn't what I want anymore, you know? And, and so there's always been this dynamic between like magic and exclusivity that a lot of people I think adhere to, but you hear, then you think about, well, we should make this available to everyone. But as soon as it becomes available to everyone, some of that magic for some people gets lost. And so, you know, I think, I think, I, I don't know how it plays out, but 
for instance, if if my thesis is correct, that if you, even in a modern Western version of psychedelics, you're now opening people's eyes to the value of community and magic and spirituality and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of start taking the perspective that you just offered, you know, is it going to squeeze out what makes what you value disappear? Is it going to leave? But I, I don't, again, I come back to like, in my head, as long as people value that and value the magic and the community and, and going to, you know, Amazonian ayahuasca retreats and all that kind of stuff in a very kind of traditional context, there's going to be space for that, you know, and, and, and you know, humanity and, and I think capitalism enables space for that, right? If people value it, you know, it'll be provided in a capitalist system. And, and so that's why I kind of for all the ills and challenges that then there certainly are with the capitalist system, it's really good at giving people what they want by and large. And, and so that's why I have probably more trust in the system than, than maybe people, certain people in the, in the psychedelic community right now. So there's one piece to that too, which is around equal access to psychedelics. I know a lot of smaller clinics, like Sage Institute's a good example of this, are proactively trying to bring in people who might not be able to afford traditional treatments through sliding scale and also training clinicians from diverse backgrounds. Does Field Trip have any kind of programs or policies around making these medicines more accessible? This kind of goes along with your with your thesis here that we want to make this accessible to the most people. But if, you know, it's it's $5,000 for five sessions, I, I don't remember the exact number, five it's forty seven hundred dollars, which is a total of sixteen sessions, um, oh, okay. which is six ketamine sessions, six uh, exploratory therapy sessions, and three integration sessions, and, and one consultation with the physician. Which is not cheap. Don't get me wrong. It works out to about just under three hundred dollars per session on average. Yeah, and accessibility is is a big challenge, you know. And it's one of those things um, where it's like as long as you have people who need to get paid and put food on their plates and all that kind of stuff being actively involved in the process it's it's going to be expensive you know it, that's just one of the challenges of if you need people who value you know their time to be doing this that's got to be paid for somehow right <laughs> and that's just a, a challenge of psychedelic therapies overall and um you know, our our kind of thesis is that if you bring a, a market approach to it, you know, it's one of the ways to enhance access that there will be a variety of different people providing these services and some of them will be lower cost and lower access and some will be higher cost and, and lower access. And, and and so I think that's positive. But I don't think this, this challenge is solved by virtue of a market system alone. I, I think there has to be a, a variety of approaches to make that possible. And, and so, you know, at Field Trip, we are certainly hiring people of diverse backgrounds from a ther- therapist perspective. And we have a program where a percentage of revenues will be used to enable access to people who couldn't necessarily access it from a cost perspective. You know, and these are just two starting points, but they're incomplete and, and and they're inadequate. There's absolutely no doubt about that. You know, I think the way we approach it, though, is that if you can make this system at least sustainable, you enable greater opportunity to make it more accessible. And people can debate that. And again, it's not a perfect answer. And I, I see both sides of the equation, but that's kind of where we're coming from. It's like, let's make this work. Let's make this sustainable where we can employ people and pay rent and, you know, make sure our investors will continue to support us and and scale it and, and invite more people to create more competition, which will offer more options for more people. At the same time, you know, I don't think we're we're sitting by and saying like that's the only thing we're 
going to do. We're going to engage in dialogues and, and different ways to try and increase access. But we don't have a. I don't think anyone has a perfect answer on, on how to really achieve that on a sustainable basis. Yeah, it's it's so tricky because you know there's the therapist time, and these are you know highly trained practitioners who need to be able to be fully present. And that was you know our earlier question about burnout. You know you can't you can't cut it there. You know where where does that you know where does that money come from, and how is it balanced? And so I, I agree. There's there isn't a great answer, and I do like the fact that like you know just broadly making more access ultimately makes more access. I think the tricky thing is that since psychedelics can potentially be such incredible accelerators of our performance in the world, of our healing of trauma, if those are available to the people with the most resources, it actually just just extends this inequality even more. It does. Unless you know the psychedelic experience and the awareness that brings actually you know to your point helps them tap into a deeper sense of community and and realize that there's the balance that needs to be struck between you know personal success and fulfillment and and the health and vi- vitality of community and certainly over the last 50 years we've shifted way too far over to the individual individualistic notion and there's so many consequences of that happening how you reverse that trend i think reversing the trend towards individualism is probably going to be greater at solving the problems that we're talking about than than you know just trying to make cheap access to psychedelics available because I think you get again much like how psychedelics I think get to the root of many of the emotional challenges that lead to the mental health challenges that we exist right now. I think they also potentially are the path to change the conversation about what we value in society. And even if it means that the most individualistic and rich are the first to have their eyes opened uh, to see the value of community and diversity and all of these things, then that's probably still a a very good path to, you know, addressing the the fundamental issue here of inequality um, of access and inequality, generally speaking. Again, can be debated, I don't know, but that's kind of the way I see things. And if I didn't see that, I think it would really, I don't know that I'd necessarily be on the path that we're on with field trip or anything along those lines. But again, I'm, I think I remember I had dinner, I was at a dinner once with Justin Trudeau, uh, the prime minister of Canada, before he was prime minister. And someone asked him a question about policy and he gave this answer, which was clearly like this bullshit stock political answer. And so my next question to him was, you know, because I was coming from the perspective, I'm like, how can you possibly know everything about your economy, you know, your country, taxes, international policy, what's going on? Like you can't, there's no person on earth who could possibly hold all of that in their head at once. Like the world is way too complex. But, you know, we expect our leaders to be able to respond to these kind of questions like like a turn of a dime, right? And so I said, have you ever answered honestly with, I don't know, let me get back to you? And he's like, yep, I did that once and I was raked in the media, so I never did it again. But I think, you know, if we can all get to a place where we can answer, I think Mark Twain said, he was like, you know, I was pleased to answer promptly. I said, I don't know. And I think if we can all just get to the place where we realize that we don't know the answers, that we should all just keep trying and working on it and being open to change and being responsive as opposed to being reactive, we'll be able to achieve a lot more than deciding that we know exactly how things should be in advance and trying to force a rigid system on on how things evolve. 
Well, Ronan, that's a really nice landing place for us today because I really appreciate you coming on the show. And we did have a prep call before and you were like, yeah, I want I want the questions that are pressing. I know that there's, there's a lot of competing views in the psychedelic uh, community and the psychedelic landscape. And I appreciate your thoughtfulness. Uh, obviously, you're an extremely well-read and deep thinker on these matters. We don't agree on everything um, and that's how it is in the world and in communities. But I appreciate you being willing to come and share your perspective and listen to mine. And I think that that's how we're going to get the most optimal returns on these medicines going mainstream. It's like, let's keep checking each other, let's keep checking in. And I'm not right about everything just because I have a slightly more psychedelic community purism to me. That doesn't make me right. You know, if, if people are suffering from depression, which I have suffered from, and we can get them, you know, FT-104 and that is going to move the needle on their lives and they're not going to kill themselves, then who am I to say that's not as good as an ayahuasca ceremony, right? So, you know, there's, it's, it's a balance and I think we're all helping each other and kind of holding each other accountable and continuing these conversations. And I appreciate you coming on to do that with me today. My pleasure. And, and to your point, you know, I would say that you are right and I'm also right. You know, the, the truth is, is I, and I really believe like the universe has, there's a lot less objectivity in the universe than we expect. And there can be two perfectly right answers to the same question. And, you know, they're just different. And, and, you know, I appreciate like, again, I, I like going into these conversations where people have opposing viewpoints because I, I think it's the most important thing I can do, I think, on behalf of the for-profit community within the psychedelics industry is just show that there's at least one person who's going to come in and say, you may be right, I, I don't know, but I'm willing to listen and think about it and, and adapt and evolve. And I think that's the most important thing. And, and same with the alternative, which is if we could all just talk and respond, you know, we're going to lead to at least a, a stronger community within psychedelics more broadly and hopefully lead to the best outcomes. And certainly if there's an open dialogue, then we'll work together a lot better than if we hold each other in, in you know, suspicion and disregard. Well, Ronan, I have one final question. I end every show with this question. So our audience is primarily made up of psychedelic therapists, healers, those who are who are doing the good labor of being there with people while they're going through these experiences. Certainly aficionados as well, probably some friends of mine listening. But you know, it's really this is for those people who are doing that important work. And I always love to invite my guests at the end of each episode to just speak directly to the psychedelic therapist listening. And I think in your case, because you are employing and will be employing many of these people, you may ultimately be offering jobs to some of the people listening to this program. I think this is a unique opportunity for those who are passionate about psychedelic medicine. They want to be healers themselves. Maybe they're in a CIS program now. Um, With those people in mind, what would you like to say directly to the people who are doing that work? Thank you for listening. And also know that we're listening. And if you have ideas and, and thoughts and anything along those lines, reach out whether you want to work with Field Trip, whether you hold us uh, in esteem, or whether you think we're the devil. It's like, that's okay. I'm always open to constructive, thoughtful dialogue. And so please reach out and, and keep doing what you're doing. You know, at the end of the day, I truly believe we're taking different paths, but we have the same objective. And I think there are many roads that lead there. So, you know, we support everything that you do by and large, and, 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 and just know that I'm always happy to talk and I don't have perfect answers, but I'm always also willing to listen and, and continue to evolve. 
Ronan, thank you so much for coming on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's been a pleasure and given me things to think about. I'm sure our listeners as well. And so you can check out Field Trip at, uh, give us all the places to follow you and know about you and all the things. Sure. So um, if you want to look into our Field Trip Health Centers, fieldtriphealth.com is the website. If you're more interested in the overall corporation, meetfieldtrip.com is our website. And if you want to follow us on socials, it's at Field Trip Health on Twitter and Instagram. Do you have a public, do you put things out, Social? writing and what's, where, where do people follow you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess also if you want to uh, listen to conversations, we have a podcast called Field Tripping Epic Trips and Psychedelics, where I try to kind of put on my hat through my experiences and, and listen to people's other other people's psychedelic experiences and help them unpack those experiences and what they may mean. Mm. And uh, so the podcast is called Field Tripping Epic Trips and Psychedelics. Uh, it, the website is fieldtripping.fm, uh, like the, the radio dial. And we've had some great hosts. So that's probably where you're going to see the most kind of candid content from me. If you follow me on my socials, uh, it's at Ronan D. Levy. So Ronan David Levy, but just the D. You'll probably just see me mostly posting articles on Twitter and on Instagram, pictures of my kids, but you can follow me on both spots there. But if you want like a more candid color commentary of who I am and the way I see the world, definitely the podcast is the, the way to check it out. Well, I did not do my due diligence on this show because I didn't know you did a podcast and I totally could have given you like 10 minutes on that. I love talking to podcasters about podcasts, so we might have to do that another time. Um, it's cool that you do that. I think it's, it's, a great, it's a great way of being part of these different conversations and I like that you're helping people unpack their journeys because it takes a long time to figure it out. You see things and you're like, what does that even mean? It takes a while. So totally. And I just want to give people a platform to talk about their psychedelic experiences. Like let's mainstream the conversation. It shouldn't be so uh, stilted and, and, you know, on the fringes, I think it should be mainstream. And I also, you know, really try to emphasize and like, I put out my, my vulnerabilities and my shit into the podcast and share that with people. So people feel comfortable sharing theirs. And again, it's like, if my, my fundamental thesis is if we all get better at feeling and expressing and um, processing our emotions, this world is going to be a significantly better place. And then just giving a platform where that can be real is one small way that I'm trying to enable that. Well, thank you. Thanks for offering that. And thanks again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been great. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.